This is a public service announcement with guitar. Welcome, welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlick, flying solo as Ed Smith is at a union arbitration this week. But hey, Mike Nacella is back from vacay. Welcome back, Mike. We are a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Over 100 labor radio and podcast shows just like this. You can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. On today's show, there was a moment in the late 1970s, I remember it well, when Teamsters and other union members, the Chicano movement, people of color, the gay liberation movement, feminists, leftists, environmentalists, everybody came together to boycott Coors Beer. We're going to visit a little bit later on with Allison Brantley. She's got a new book out, Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Coors and remade American consumer activism. Also, on this week's episode of Tales of the Resistance, injustice and romance are in the air when an Asian American Antifa activist and a Black American activist drag queen are both thrown in a self-resisting arrest, and when right-wing insurrectionists attack the jail to free their leader, political passion becomes a jailbreak. That'll be later on as well. But first, In a recent survey, nearly 80% of federal and D.C. workers say that they are more productive teleworking during the pandemic. Here to tell us more is Richard Loeb. He's the Senior Policy Counselor for the American Federation of Government Employees. Welcome, Richard. Good to have you back on. Hey, Chris. Great to be back with you. I'm um, thinking uh, you probably remember the chorus boycott, by the way, just as an aside. Uh, you look you look about uh, at that age. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I was I only remember it because, you know, I was, you know, stealing chorus, you know, taking sips from you know my father's whatever. There you go. There uh, you go. <laughs> hey, listen, so like you, I've been working remotely since the pandemic began. I'm hosting this show from home. Uh, I know that I have felt much more productive, and I was really fascinated to see the results of the survey by your union. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What are some of your major findings? Well, we did the survey, uh, I think it was in May, and uh, what we found is that uh, for people who were capable of teleworking, which was a large portion of our membership, but not everyone, I want to emphasize that, that they felt that in the end, uh, productivity was either the same or improved. Uh, only a small portion felt that productivity went down. Um, and so I suspect a lot of that has to do with the fact that, let's face facts, you know, we're all sitting in front of a computer, right? All day long, <laughs> when we go in, we go in, oh, yeah. we spend whatever it is, an hour or so commuting, an hour or so going home, and then we sit in front of a computer and do our work for many people, not everyone, but many. Well, what difference does it make where the computer is located? In your home, at work, wherever it may be. Um, how does that, you know, you're doing the same work. Um, you, how does that affect productivity? Well, I would argue in many cases, probably increased productivity simply because you didn't have to commute. Uh, that saved for many people one to two hours, sometimes even more. 
Um, you're more refreshed. Obviously, you don't have to go through the whatever it be the roads or a bus or the metro. Uh, sorry for my brothers and sisters who work for public transit, but it is not not their fault. But that's the way you know. That's the way things are. So we found. I mean, I can give you some real specifics, but we we found that the federal and DC government uh, employees that we represent were, for the most part, more productive while teleworking. Um, Contrary to assumptions from some lawmakers that efficiency or productivity suffers when employees are uh, permitted to telework in cases where there are actual production quotas, which are for quite a few employees, uh, attorneys uh, and the like at the VA uh, Board of Veterans Appeals, they were able to meet their you know, production quotas and turn in the same work. Uh, Social Security, I mean, basically it turned into a matter of did the agency have adequate resources to make telework possible, which obviously relates to IT systems. And did employees have adequate resources at their place of residence? Um, we found that uh, uh, many federal work sites, including the defense and transportation departments, reported these are the departments, not us, reported increases in productivity during the pandemic, even though virtually everybody was working 100 uh, percent from home uh, all of that time. Um, we're going to use this information, obviously, um, to uh, as, as part of our negotiations with agency consider, con, uh, concerning telework. Uh, I mean, I can give you some more statistics that hopefully it won't bore you, but I want to get into some, you know, some policy issues. So while teleworking, 62% of respondents say their productivity increased by a lot. 17% said productivity increased a little. Another 17% said it didn't change. 4% of the respondents said their productivity declined. When I checked into that, I found out that in many cases, there to the, the 4%, it declined because agency systems couldn't send them the material they needed, uh, you know, cases and, 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 you know, obviously, you know, there's been a great strain on IT resources. Uh, so that hopefully we're learning from that. Um, prior to the pandemic, 58% of employees, of AFG's employees who responded, did no telework at all, which is consistent with government-wide uh, stats provided by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. And, and let me let me actually jump in there for a sec because that stat really, I think, I think it resonates with a lot of us, right? I mean, because you know, most folks, you know, did not really telework uh, before, you know, before the pandemic, and so the fact that fifty-eight percent, which is you know a huge number of your folks who didn't telework basically at all. And I, I assume like everybody else pretty much went to telework overnight, right? Yes. I mean, they, well, they, they presumably had some, because of continuity of government issues that have always uh, existed, they had systems in place in case, you know, there was an attack. Nobody expected a pandemic, but, you know, we were always worried about terrorism or, you know, who knows. Uh, so m- most federal employees had some system so that they could engage in uh, continuity of government operations. So computers, IT, et cetera. Um, during the height of the pandemic, uh, oh, well, before the, before the pandemic, all fi- all 15% of employees reported teleworking one day a week. Um, so uh, now it appears that uh, during the pandemic, 80% of respondents said they were teleworking every day. Uh, only 10% were not teleworking at all. Um, 77% said that they would like to continue teleworking at their current level, and 20% said they'd like to actually increase the number of the days they work from home. I guess some of them are going in. Um, I can, you know, go on and on, but but I guess the, the big thing seemed to be that, you know, because of the pandemic, because of the need to telework, and this isn't just the government, this is across, you know, America, uh, and there are obviously significant exceptions, but for people who are involved in uh, 
work before computers and communicating with colleagues on an informal basis, um, there just doesn't seem to be any real impact on productivity, except maybe that it increases a bit on the whole, because people don't have to put up with the inconvenience of going to work and coming home and, you know, the physical movement. Now, maybe they, that's, they should move around a little bit, but, but, the, but, the, but they don't have to, you know, they don't have to go through the hassle of the commute. Um, I should let, let probably me. add that we also represent a lot of people who can't telework. Right. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, corrections officers, you know, a little tough on that one. Uh, particularly people at the VA who are healthcare providers, despite the best efforts of telemedicine. I mean, obviously, you know, it's best that the patient be there for nurses at the VA and other staff who support uh, the VA healthcare mission. Uh, you have to be there. There are a lot of other things, uh, border patrol agents, uh, you know, old law enforcement types who have to physically be out there. They have to be, you know, they have to go to work and provide uh, the services on a personal level. So it's, it, it creates a, a a bit of a dichotomy, but we did find that for those who could telework, that telework seemed to have only a positive impact on productivity. So uh, a couple of questions before we let you go, Richard. I mean, one is, uh, did, did, these, did any of these stats surprise you? Was there anything there that, that you sort of didn't see coming? That's a personal question, not really. Uh, I think that the level to which everyone agreed with me <laughs> may be a little surprising. I think that uh, it just proved that because of the way work has changed over the last 20 to 40 years and you know how much it's information technology based, that it is uh, something that doesn't really matter where you are when you're doing it. You, you, as long as you have the adequate tools in front of you, you can do it. Now, obviously, those are for, you know, what some people will call knowledge jobs, I guess. Uh, they'll use that term a lot. That's not to suggest that the healthcare people don't have, need to have a lot of knowledge, but they don't, you know, they, they actually have to interact with the people they're treating. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm not particularly surprised about that. And I think, you know, forgetting for a moment, federal government, if you look at corporate America, I think they're grappling with this, like, what should we do? You know, how should we treat work? Um, it's it lead, it's going to lead to, it has already led, and I imagine will lead to a greater rethinking of just what is the nature of, you know, attendance at a physical place, work type requirement. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's going to change a lot. Well, and my last question, and frankly, this is such an important issue, and, and you have so many members, not only here in the D.C. area, but across the country, we're going to have to have you. And, and in fact, I'd love to get some of the workers on to talk about this. This is an issue that's, you know, that's facing, facing us all. And I guess this is another question I don't think it was addressed in the survey. So just give me your personal take on it. I mean, it just, are we facing a real culture change? And, you know, is this going to be a lasting cultural change, do you think? Well, I think because we only have a pandemic about once every hundred years, <laughs> I'm not planning on the next one. I just, you know, I think when you come out of uh, such a major historical event that it has such a deep effect on people economically, socially, culturally, but sure, you, there, there, there got to be changes. It's like any momentous event, um, people are going to be affected. And no, we won't go back to the old ways. We may go back to some of the old ways. We may go in. Uh, but I, I suspect this change is semi-permanent uh, and that people will, in fact, not physically appear at the office. And where, you know, the, before this, I, I know you're pressed for time, but before the pandemic, 
telework was already sort of taking hold in the government right. and in the private sector, both, you know, in um, the only thing that sort of throttled it back was the nastiness of the Trump appointees who were like, okay, well, you're teleworking, so I know you're actually sleeping. So, I mean, it's like, uh, okay, well, then give us assignments and see if we meet them and whether the quality is good, we meet any productivity quotas you need. I mean, you know, uh, you know, turn it, you know, as they say, bring it on. And I don't think that they can, they can show that there were really any changes. And so, like, I guess that upset their uh, their mindset. Look at the work, right? Look at the work. What is what is actually being done? It's the hardest, hardest thing. Richard Loeb, always wonderful. Great survey. I hope your members are, are holding up and, and coming through this uh, well. And we look forward to having you back on. Yeah, Chris, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Richard Loeb, he's Senior Policy Counselor for the American Federation of Government Employees, or AFGE. All right. As I mentioned at the top, there was a moment back in the 70s uh, when a bunch of unions and community folks, different movements, everybody came together to boycott Coors Beer. I know I still have trouble when I see Coors Beer at the supermarket, uh, remembering that it is no longer being boycotted. Um, and it's actually uh, a union beer. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome Allison Brantley. She's got a brand new book out, Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Cores and Remade American Consumer Activism. She's Assistant Professor of History and Director of Honors in Interdisciplinary Initiatives at the University of Laverne in Southern California. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. And I should mention, we're just going to have a short visit with her, but you can get a whole lot more, Allison, tonight at 10. There's going to be an online discussion uh, that I think will go on for at least an hour, if I'm not mistaken, starting at 10 o'clock. We've got a link on our website, dclabor.org. Click on calendar. So this is really just in the nature of a teaser. But Allison, remind folks uh, who may not remember, what what was the Gore's boycott about in what was, why was it so important? Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned um, remembering it in the late 1970s, but actually um, the boycott began in the late 1950s. It's in the 1970s where it kind of goes nationwide. So my book explores the long history of progressive activists, uh, activist boycott on Coors Beer. From the late 1950s to the 1990s, Activists targeted the Coors Brewing Company and the Coors family for allegations of anti-unionism, discrimination on the job, and also far-right conservative politics. Uh, the family was really uh, deeply imbricated in the rise of the conservative right in the 1970s and 1980s. And this effort brought about some really unlikely alliances, as you mentioned at the top, uh, uniting union members, black activists, Chicano and Latinx activists, LGBTQ or queer activists and others. And one of the things that I think is really significant about this movement is one, it's really one of the longest running consumer boycotts in US history, uh, but it also brought together a, a really robust coalition of folks who were figuring out how to fight for labor rights and quite frankly, other rights in a moment where labor's powers is kind of diminishing. Uh, so it demonstrates the ongoing efforts of activism in, into the 70s and 80s. And it's a good example of how to build a lasting coalition and a lasting boycott. Well, and I think it's it's sort of instructive to think about, you know, 
that this time period, there was no social media, there was no internet. Take us back a little bit to, you know, I, I was a teenager, um, you know, at the time, you know, how, how did you do a boycott? I mean, there, there was a model already, obviously, with the farm workers and boycotting grapes and the, the Farrah, the Farrah Slacks boycott. So that was that it was kind of a thing at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing to keep in mind about those boycotts that you mentioned and the Coors boycott is that it wasn't just people saying, okay, now we're going to boycott and everybody kind of follows suit. It was really carefully organized. Um, It's hard work to organize a boycott. The folks behind it uh, for a lot of its phases were members of the Brewery Workers Union in Golden, Local 366, And they went on strike against Coors in April of 77. And even before they went on strike, they knew they were going to organize a boycott. Uh, They knew that the company would dig its heels in and do whatever it took to beat uh, the union in the strike. So they knew that a boycott was the best way to counteract that and supplement the strike. So they sent, like the United Farm Workers did, strikers and brewery workers to different cities to organize coalitions to attend any and all union meetings community coalition meetings to build really sort of robust and reciprocal relationships Um, they also used a lot of flyers bumper stickers buttons there's a lot a lot of really cool movement ephemera from this uh, to spread the word but to really get people to commit they had to understand um, that it was in their best interest to boycott Coors, um, that if you were opposed to anti-unionism, if you were opposed to the far right, the best way you could demonstrate that and act upon it was to boycott Coors. And, and you touched on this a bit, but but talk a little bit more about th- this was, again, I think there was some uh, models with, with other boycotts at the time, but but the, the coalitions that this built were really pretty unusual, right? I mean, Teamsters, Chicanos, uh, people of color, which I don't even think was a term at the time, gay liberation, which was just literally coming out of the closet at that time. It was it was very much a nascent movement. Feminine. I mean, a lot of this stuff was just at the beginning. And so, frankly, for the union movement to reach out to those communities at that period of time, it was not something that was really done, right? Right. Um, there's a really good example of this in... 1973 in San Francisco, this is where the the most kind of unlikely coalition comes out. Uh, You have Teamsters who are on strike against a Coors distributor in the Bay Area, and they're having a hard time getting their boycott going. They're kind of, you know, really struggling to keep the strike momentum up. And a couple of organizers on the ground kind of realize that, well, the Bay Area has all these other organizations and communities who are doing really great organizing. And so they reach out to see, okay, will you support us in our boycott and at first, most of these groups, like the Black Panthers or <laughs> activist groups, they're like, no, um, you know, we want to see you do something for us. Your union is basically all white. And the Teamsters didn't have the greatest reputation in terms of their fight with the, youth, the farm workers. And so the union organizers, instead of just going it on their own, they actually worked to improve their reputation. They put forward an affirmative action plan. So they did things to to build goodwill with these other organizations. So it wasn't just a coalition on paper. There was a really concerted effort to build connections in spite of the sort of unlikeliness of those connections. 
Right. And, and that was, I, I remember that, you know, it was really sort of reaching out. And, and I think this, uh, we used to call it rent a collar, right. Where, where, you know, people would sort of call up and say, Oh, you know, can you get some ministers to show up, you know, uh, get a, get a, get a minister, you know, get a farm worker on the line or, and, and sort of really not digging deep into uh, deep into organizing, building those kind of relationships. And I think that that was what, one of the key things that the farm workers really did a good job of. Uh, the clothing workers really tried to do that with the Paraboyka and certainly the Teamsters. And, and as you point out, they had a big hill to climb. I mean, they had, they had uh, been definitely uh, played a very disruptive role um, in the, in the farm worker uh, boycott actually. So uh, them reaching out on that. And I think that's another reason it was so for the labor movement, it was such a, a key battle because it really, if, if the Teamsters could come together with all these different movements, it really kind of opened up the rest of the movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, it, it's a great model in the seventies of the possibilities of coalition building that one, it's something you can do and that if it's done right, it actually has an impact. I mean, it makes an impact on the people in the movement for sure. And then it also amplifies the impact you're going to have on the corporation. So just got a couple of minutes left, but I want you to talk about, um, you know, that was a few years ago, you know, the mid seventies. Um, what is, what does the Coors boycott have to tell us uh, activists uh, you know, today? I mean, the idea of a boycott these days, very different in, in a lot of ways, both pro and con, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the Coors boycott, in one way, in one sense, it's sort of a product of its time. You you have activist networks across the country that make it possible to organize this long boycott. But I think that, and this is an argument I make in the book, is that the folks who organized the boycott on Coors really helped to reimagine the possibilities of the consumer boycott, um, demonstrating it wasn't something you just called for when your union was on strike but that you could use the boycott to make broader political statements um, and to really understand your own consumerism and your consumer dollars as having political implications. Uh, I think we increasingly understand our consumer habits as political. The, you know, the Goya boycott comes to mind on, you know, depending on either side of the political spectrum, viewed that boycott in political terms. Um, so I think the Coors boycott demonstrates that we can use that, that kind of platform for organizing and solidarity. Uh, but one thing that I emphasize in the book is boycotts are really hard work. Um, they're not that easy. You can't just like put something on Twitter and hope that people will follow along. So the, the Coors boycott offers a model of actually the hard work of organizing something like this. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, as somebody, you know, who did kind of come up with the old fashioned, you know, literally at sometimes, you know, door knocking person by person, uh, it's really hard for me sometimes to think about how we did that without social media, Um, you know, but for folks now who are, you know, like, you know, we'll put it on Facebook, we'll put it on social media, done and dusted, we're good to go. And I think what you're saying is that, you know, that's a powerful tool but it's not the same and it's not enough. Am I reading too much into that? Yeah, I agree. I think maybe it's the same then as now. You can't just ask people to boycott. I mean, if if people don't feel a personal connection, they're going to give it up when when they're in a bar and all that's on tap is Coors, right? Uh, So you have to have clear messaging about what's at stake for people and why the boycott will actually make an impact. And I think 
sometimes with boycotts today, that language isn't there. Um, there's just the simple like join the boycott without much of a, a narrative or um, sort of emotional appeal. Yeah, and, and just before we wrap up, that was what I was thinking is that, again, I, seriously, when I go in the store and I see cores, I do have to, I almost do a double take, right? I mean, I, I honestly, even when I see grapes, and I love grapes. <laughs> um, it's something that I still think about all these years later. But I mean, you know, the Goya thing, uh, I'd already forgotten about that. You know, it, it really didn't dig deep into my soul, if you will, <laughs> even though I, I was totally supportive of it. And I still don't buy Goya now that you mention it. <laughs> So I, I just feel, I wonder if it's, a, it's, it's key on that. Anyway, Allison, it's wonderful to have you on. Great book. It's called Brewing a Boycott, How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Cores Remade American Consumer Activism. You can talk with Allison tonight at 10. We've got a link on our website. Allison, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Hope to see folks tonight. All right. Take care. Next up, this week's episode of Tales of the Resistance. Stay tuned. Troop, and welcome to Tales of the Resistance, Volume 2, Persistence, a summer of original radio podcast political comedies by the confusingly named, always radical, and never ever silent San Francisco Mime Troop. Every week, we will be presenting one episode written, directed, and performed by Mime Troop veterans and dealing with the revolutionary issues of the day. This week's story, Jailbreak, a passion for justice. Resisting arrest. That's what they call it. That's what they always called it. Like, I'm supposed to stand there and take it. Yeah, I was at the protest. Yeah, it got violent when those Nazi nutbags showed up. But since when is fighting fascism against the law? The other side breaks the law, breaks into Capitol buildings wearing swastikas, and they get handled with kid gloves. But wear a t-shirt that says, capitalism sucks ass, and you might as well be wearing a target and doing anything to stop a cop from cracking your skull is a crime. A crime called... Resisting arrest. You just use that to shut us up. Whatever works. You pigs ain't got nothing on me. We got all we need, hippie. I'm not a hippie. Hippie? I'm not a hippie. What's wrong with being a hippie? You back there, be quiet. Some of my favorite divas have been called hippies. That voice. Janis Joplin, Grace Slick, the young Cher. It poured from the back of the jail cell like honey oyster sauce over hot crispy chicken. Stevie Nicks, Erica Badu. I... I didn't mean like it was a bad thing. I did. I'm not talking to you. You said it like it was an insult or something. It is an insult. Could you leave us alone? You don't order me around, punk. This ain't your cell block, it's mine. We took the rest of your Antifa comrades to the third precinct, but you, you're in my house, because you're special. Special? And if I want to call you a hippie, a commie, or an Asian Oompa Loompa, there ain't a damn thing you can do about it. Are you going to call me an Oompa Loompa, too? 
I think I'd like that. Hey! All sweet and chocolatey. Shut up! And smooth and dark like my name, Sanka. I ain't got time for this. Oh, but you do have time to drag me into this filthy jail just for writing God is gay? In letters eight feet tall. Yes, well... On the side of a church. I used pastels. It'll come up when it rains. I don't see the big deal. And you resisted arrest. You did? I may have. A bit. Sergeant Thompson is still covered in chalk. Pastels. Just keep it down. So, you resisted arrest too? Some arrests need to be resisted. Besides, I was caught up in my artistic passion. There it was again. Something in that voice wrapping me in a luxurious embrace. Is this your first time in jail? No. Seems like I get picked up at every protest. Well, let me tell you a little something. You can't let them see they've got you rattled. I don't always act like you're shocked, shocked that you are oppressed. I'm not shocked. No, you act shocked. You pigs ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> Honey, if you had pearls, you would have clutched them. I'm angry about the injustice of it all. So am I. I've already been in here two days, but you don't see me complaining to my oppressor like they give even the tiniest of dams. This, darling, is the inevitable result of fighting the fight. You sound pretty used to it. <laughs> used to it? You think I want to be here, in this cell, on a Saturday night? I have things to meet and people to do. But if being in jail is the price I have to pay for reminding the world that if God exists, she is most definitely queer, missing one night on stage is worth it. She stood there, glittering gold eye makeup still clinging to her brave face. Sanka had been in full drag when she graffitied the church, dressed as Angelina Jolie from Maleficent. So defiant, so brave. I had only shared a cell with Sanka for a few hours, but already I had fallen hard. Why are you looking at me like that? Just thinking. I like your makeup. You do? And how very handsome you are in this light. In the light of a jail cell? I've only seen you in the light of a jail cell. Well, wait until you see me in the spotlight. You will be dazzled. <laughs> What's your name? Chung Jun. Chung Jun. I like the way that feels in my mouth. You do? Listen, I have an idea. Hey! Would you two ladies keep it down in there? I may be a lot of things, but I am no lady. Well, whatever you are, be quiet. Who died and made you queen of the cell block? I ain't no queen. Oh, you sure aren't a prince. Do you know who I am? I try not to concern myself with trivia. My name is Thor. Thor Hammersack. Thor Hammersack? Actually, his name was Arthur Dweeble. I'd seen him on the news. By day, he was a sandwich jockey at Quiznos. But by night, he was the self-proclaimed thunder god of the insurrectionists. The whitest of the white people, proudest of the proud boys, and the oath-keepiest of the oath-keepers. He'd been arrested at the same protest I was at. I think he punched a Starbucks. You two make me want to throw up with your... and your... Well, when we real men take this country back, we are going to be coming for the likes of you. Coming for us? Yeah. Are you sure you mean coming for us? Yeah, and when we get you, we're gonna... What? Wait, what do you mean? I just wondered. I mean, you seem so worked up. Well, yeah, thinking about men like you. Do you think about us a lot? Yeah. Do you dream about us? Yeah. No. What? No. That's sick. Ooh, sick. Like a fever dream? 
I can picture you in your tiny bed, all covered with sweat. Hey! Thinking about us. If we weren't behind these bars, I'd kick your ass. So now you're thinking about my ass. What? No! Well, if you weren't before, you are now. Shut up! You started it. Leave me alone! You're really good at that. <laughs> Nothing shrivels a homophobe faster than implying that he doth protest too much. I normally just punch him. Fist fights smear my mascara. Besides, why punch them in the face when you can punch them in the brain? There it was again, that tingling in the pit of my stomach, like jumping off the playground swing when it's at its highest. A kind of tickle that means you're in free fall. I was pretty sure Sanka could tell how I felt. Even in the shadows of the cell, it was hard to hide. You're thinking something. So, what's your real name? Sanka. I mean, your offstage name. Don't assume I'm someone else when the lights go down. Chung Jun! Detective upstairs wants to talk to you. Detective? Where are you taking him? There's a couple of questions we need answered. No, you better not lay a finger on him. Thanks, Sanka. At least not until I do. Cut that out! Jealous for... No! Come on! It was a small interrogation room with hard, uncomfortable furniture. And a detective to match. Have a seat. Why am I here? We have some questions. Yeah, Mr. Jun. We have some questions. My name isn't Mr. Jun. Aha! What? You've been lying. He's not lying. But it says right here, Chung Jun. In Mandarin, the family name comes first. Isn't that right, Mr. Chung? Yes. Because in China, traditionally the family, the community is more important than the individual. Yes. Oh, commies. Mr. Chung, you were at the protest earlier today. Yes. What were you doing? Protesting. And ten years ago, you were arrested at an Occupy Wall Street event. Yes. What were you doing then? Occupying. Don't be smart. I don't have any choice. I am smart. In fact, you've been brought in quite a few times, always on the same charge. Resisting arrest. If they can't get you for anything else, the cops can always get you for that. Resisting. Don't move fast enough? Resisting. Don't stand still enough? Resisting. Don't do nothing, nothing enough? Resisting. Cops love saying you resisted, because then it's always up to you to prove you didn't. Do you attend a lot of protests? You make it sound like the opera. I don't attend protests, I protest. And what exactly do you protest? The rising tide of fascism. Well... We have been told you do more than just protest. Told? Actually, we were told that you are one of the leaders. Leader? Of what? Of Antifa. What? You heard her, June. Chang! Whatever. But Antifa doesn't have leadership. That's what you like us to believe, isn't it? Yeah, because it's true. Is it? Or is it not true that there's a central group of underground anarchists that plan every protest? Yes. Aha! Yes, it is not true. What? She asked a negative question, so... Don't be smart. I am smart. Mr. Chung, isn't it true... Wait. Is it not... Okay. Are you in the leadership of Antifa, just like you were in the leadership of Occupy Wall Street? No leaders. We don't have leaders. Why can't you people understand? No leaders, no leaders. What does he mean? I think he means they don't have leaders. Then how does anything get done? The people don't need anybody to tell us what's wrong with this country. And that would be? Police brutality. 
government corruption, the media spouting lies for the corporate aristocracy, climate change for profit, the working poor struggle to feed their families while the super rich plan their trips to Mars. Oh, now you don't like Mars? It's not about Mars. The fascist elite are spending our money on their escape while using the cops and the military to shut down democracy on a planet ruined by their greed. Oh. Very eloquent. And you still say you're not a leader. No leaders. I'm just here for resisting arrest. Not anymore. You're releasing me? Quite the opposite. We're charging you with inciting a riot, destruction of property. What? Assaulting an officer, public endangerment. But that's... that's... Fascist! Of course, if you told us the names of other leaders of Antifa, maybe we could work out a deal. There are no other leaders. Aha! So it's just you. That's not what I meant. It's one or the other. You or them. Whoever told you I'm in charge of anything is lying. You want us to believe these protests just happen to pop up everywhere all the time? Because the problems are everywhere all the time. You know, I wonder if he'd be more cooperative if it meant saving someone else. Someone else? Someone like his little cellmate downstairs. Senka? Yeah, they've become really cozy. No! Resisting arrest could keep Senka here a long time. I'm sure they just love him downstairs. Or you could just tell us what we want to know. But I can't! Take him back. Give him a little time to think before we run him downtown. Downtown? Since Antifa is a national organization, we'll be handing you over to the FBI. But there is no organization. Take him. Ugh. Come on, you. Ugh. He grabbed me by the handcuffs and dragged me out. The FBI? What was going on? And who told him I was in charge of anything? Come on. Ow. I can't get my cats to stay off my laptop while I'm typing. Who would say I could organize protests? Miss me? I didn't have time to think about it. Well, he was certainly lonely down here with no one to talk to except Cleofus Harryback. Or Hammersack! Whatever. They want to charge me with a bunch of federal crimes. Hand me over to the FBI. Girl, once the police get you in the grip, they don't want to let go. And if I don't make up some crap about Antifa, they're going to hold you. What? Somebody told them I was in the leadership, and if I don't name names, they threatened to keep you as long as they can. Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, yes, they did. What are we going to do? And at that moment, the entire cell block was plunged into darkness. What's going on? All right, nothing to panic about. We're just having a little problem with the lights. I smell smoke. There's some kind of protest outside the precinct. A bunch of folks wearing those full-face head thing, whatchamacallit's... Baklavas. You mean balaclavas? Maybe some of your Antifa friends come to bust you out. Or maybe they're drag queens here to rescue me. Do any of them look particularly festive? What's that? They must have broken through the front windows. Stay here. Like we have an option? Well, ladies, I can't say it's been a pleasure. What, you have an appointment somewhere? As a matter of fact, I do. And I think my ride just arrived. We couldn't see anything. The cell block was dark and full of smoke. Then, suddenly, the door to the squad room opened, and I could just make out masked figures running into the cell block. Where are you, mein Führer? <laughs> cell number five. <laughs> Open cell five. Are you all right, mein Führer? <laughs> Give me a gas mask. 
I only have extra balaclavas. You filled the place with smoke but didn't think to bring an extra gas mask for me? You said before it wasn't a good look for you. Yes, not leadery enough. That's during parades and press conferences. Actual smoke and gas. I'd like a mask. <laughs> you! Yes? Give me your mask. But... Don't make me drop the hammer sack on you. Yavol! Good. Now let's go. But I can't see anything. Move it. Mind you? Hello? Hey, you, Stormtrooper! What are you doing? I have an idea. Is that you, Mind Fuhrer? I, I can't see! Yes, I mean, no, it's... I'm a different Fuhrer. But there is only one Fuhrer! That's true, but I'm the secret assistant Fuhrer. Assistant Fuhrer? I was on my way to meet up with you all for brunch, but I was arrested for all my white power shenanigans. Shenanigans? Hush! So they put me and my intern, Fura in this cell. I can get you out. Could you? That would be fabulous. Open cell six. Come. We must hurry. Um, wait a minute. What is it? Do you need me to come in there and help? No, don't come in the cell. Why not? Because we filled it with booby traps. Why? To catch communists. Brilliant. But we do need you to throw some balaclavas in here for us, though, to cover our faces. Because... Yes, because we... We don't want to... To get any... Smoke... In our... Hair! Of course! And some gloves. Gloves? To cover our hands. What? Fingerprints. Brilliant! How is this going to work? Just act real white. How? I don't know. Order people around. You! Get us out of here! Yes, mine intern Fuhrer! We made our way out of the cell block and through the squad room. It was still dark and smoky, and the cops were too panicked to notice the three of us sneak out a side door. Free at last! Mine assistant Fuhrer? That's... What are you wearing? What? You look like a witch. Didn't you see Maleficent? No. This is the official uniform. Of all assistant Führers. It is? Yes. Breathtaking, isn't it? It sure is. Well, thanks for getting us out of there. I'll remember you at our next Third Reich soiree. Where are you going? Well, we're going to... We have to get to the rally point. Which is where, exactly? The TGI Fridays across from City Hall. Right. Listen, I think my intern and I are planning on rallying in a suite at the Hyatt. I don't know, my assistant Führer. The Führer Führer was very clear. But can we really secure a casual restaurant? Don't worry, there'll be hundreds of us there. But the streets between here and there, full of cops. We'll be fine. I have a gun. You do? It's right here. That's a gun, all right. So, come on, and don't you worry. I won't take my eyes off you until we meet up with Führer Hammersack. And so, with a gun-waving proud boy behind us, and a few hundred stormtroopers ahead of us, and the FBI on our trail, we made our way through the dark streets. I had no idea how we were going to get out of this, but when I looked over at Senka, I could tell the wheels were already turning. Jun, I have an idea. Principal Johnson. Yes, Miss Larkin? It's little Jimmy. Again. Okay. Bring him in, please. So, Jimmy. Democracy stinks! What? 
Democracy stinks! Now, Jimmy, I want you to go out, count to ten, and come back when you have calmed down. Oh, gee. Out! Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Come in. Yes? Democracy stinks! Jimmy! Or it does. And girls stink, and some boys and teachers, everybody stinks! Whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? The election! The election? It wasn't fair! Now, Jimmy, no matter what you see online, or what some conspiracy theorists say, the Justice Department has thoroughly investigated... The Justice Department? Gee, I didn't know our class was so important. What are you talking about? I'm talking about our class elections. What are you talking about? Nothing. So anyway, I was running for class president. Oh, you'd be a great president. The best ever. Well, I wouldn't say ever. Ever. And everyone in the class knows it. The only way Sally could win is if she cheated. I see. You ran for class president. The best ever. And you lost. Because of cheating. And you can't accept it. I asked for a recount, but Miss Toshima said she already counted twice. Hold on. Room 17, please. Miss Toshima, uh, this is Principal Johnson. Can you tell me, who won the election for class president? I see. And what were the totals? Thank you. Right. Okay, Jimmy. Let's play a game. What game? Cognitive dissonance. Cognitive wasonance? It's all about having contradicting truths in your head. Oh, no. Is this one of those learning games? I hate those. Oh, it'll be fun. Okay, uh, this chair is somebody's mind. Their mind is wooden? It's a metaphor, Jimmy. Oh. And I am Mr. Stubborn Idea sitting in their mind. It's impossible for me to lose. Who am I? Well, you're the hero. Yay! Mr. Undeniable Truth. That's a weird name. It's still a metaphor. Oh. Now, I want you to try to get in this mind with me. But you're taking up all the space. But you have to try. That's the game. Okay. Uh, I don't know if we can both fit, Principal Johnson. Try harder. But it's really uncomfortable. Push me out. I can't. You have to. Okay. Oh. I did it! I did it! <laughs> well, you certainly did. And if you hadn't, if we'd both tried to stay in that chair, you know what would have happened? It would have broke. That's right. And thank goodness Mr. Undeniable Truth won, or that chair would be living a lie. What is the Undeniable Truth, Principal Johnson? That you lost the election. Oh, man. Hey, now. You don't want to be a chair that lies to itself, do you? What if Sally cheated? Well, do you have any evidence that she cheated? don't have any evidence she didn't. No, you can't prove a negative, Jimmy. What do you mean? Well, can you prove you didn't cheat in the election? Or that you didn't take Billy's lunchbox and put it back before he noticed? That you didn't try to overthrow the government of Venezuela? Venezuela? There's only one person you can blame for losing the election. Sally? Nope. Miss Toshima? No. A robot? You... Me? More kids voted for Sally because they liked what she said more than they liked what you said. So, I lost? Yes. To a girl? Yes. And I can't blame anyone but me? Nope. Darn. But, well, I guess I'll have to accept it. And that makes you better than the majority of the Republican Party. Now, shouldn't you be getting back to class? I guess.
Principal Johnson? Yes, Jimmy? Can I run for president in the next election? Oh, of course you can, Jimmy. Yay! <laughs> as long as you're not in jail. Jail? Resistance. The San Francisco Mime Troop will be hosting a discussion on racial equity and police violence, facilitated by Kari Barclay, with special guests Danielle Purifoy from Durham Beyond Policing, Cap Brooks from the Anti-Police Terror Project, and Michael Jean Sullivan from the SF Mime Troop. Audio engineering by Will McCandless. is months away, but it's not too soon to get ready for A Red Carol, the Mime Troop's activist worker-oriented adaptation of the Dickens holiday masterpiece, with Scrooge, Cratchit, and Tiny Tim, plus rousing labor songs and our own particular biting political satire. Join the troop in our podcast retelling of this Christmas classic. It's A Red Carol. Red Carol. Red Carol. Red Carol. Red Carol. Red Carol. 
Jailbreak, A Passion for Justice, was written by Michael Jean Sullivan, directed by Valina Brown, and featured Andre Amaradico, Lisa Hori Garcia, Brian Rivera, Cassie Grilly, and starred with Timmy Agbapiaka as Senka, and Francis Ju as Chung Jin. Little Jimmy's Election was written by Michael Jean Sullivan and directed by Valina Brown, and featured Valina Brown, Michael Jean Sullivan, and Ellen Callis as Little Jimmy. Music for this episode was written by Daniel Savio, with Jewel McMillan on bass, David Rokish on drums and percussion, Dylan Jennings on woodwinds, and Daniel Savio on keyboards. Tales of the Resistance theme music was written by Daniel Savio and produced by Dred Scott. The Mime Troop theme song was written and produced by Jeremy Mage and Daniel Savio and performed by the San Francisco Mime Troop. Audio engineering and sound design for Tales of the Resistance is by Taylor Gonzalez and stage management is by Karen Runk. Francisco Mime Troupe is a worker-run, multi-ethnic, multi-generational collective of activist artists committed to overthrowing capitalism one musical comedy at a time. And one of these days, we will get it right. Each summer, we tour our shows at a price every member of the working class can afford. Free! With so many insurrectionist, reactionary shenanigans going on, the Mime Troupe needs to make sure our message of art, activism, and social justice is part of the resistance. And even though the pandemic is fading, the Mime Troupe still wants to keep our audiences as safe as possible. So we decided nothing says revolutionary fervor and safety like radio plays. And for those wondering how a radical theater can survive these capitalist times, it's because of you. The troupe doesn't take corporate sponsorship. You'll never see the AT&T or Comcast mime troupe. How could we show the hypocrisies of capitalism if we were in bed with a capitalist? So instead, we are in bed with you, our fellow workers. Let's snuggle. And after that, you can support the troupe by visiting our website, sfmt.org. Thank you to the San Francisco Arts Commission, SF Grants for the Arts Hotel Tax Fund, California Arts Council, USPPP, the Flyshacker Foundation, the Bernard Osher Foundation, the Zellerbach Family Foundation, Kali Austin, the Don Stevens and Nicole Bellotti Laugh and Love Fund, this public radio station, and listeners like you. for listening and remember in one week it'll be time once again for tales of the